1: economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
1: How are you doing there? It's David. John and I are having a quick giggle here at a fantastic welcome to the podcast, All That Malarkey. I got a great letter, 30th of June, 2020 from Mayo Calligraphy. Hi, David. I saw you on a Twitter picture with a mask that would cut the ears off you over the over the next little while. So I'm sending you these two to use instead. Two masks. I've enjoyed listening to the podcast. And I've <laughs> done some of the homework and the reading and the coursework over the last thing. It's keeping me semi-sane in the lockdown. As you can see, I am part of the business pivot from calligraphy to masks, keep up the good work, and I hope the government starts listening to you. And that's from Maggie, Garretty. Fantastic, Maggie. Thanks a million. Rarely have I had a woman worried about the state of my ears, John. Oh, no, uh, these masks are brilliant. <laughs> How are you doing? Your all mask up? <laughs> I'm all masked up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, John. John's the COVID warrior. <laughs> He's pointing his finger at everyone. Absolutely, wear your fecking masks. Listen, Maggie, from Mayo Calligraphy, the next time we are up in that neck of the woods, you may not have a minister in the government, but you have us. <laughs> what more could you want? Anyway, how are you doing? It's the podcast. Hope you're all well and life is going fantastically. I've got my Mayo Calligraphy premium barrier face covering. Don't even call it mask. Maggie Fairplay, how are you, head
2: I'm good. I'm very good. Funny all week, but, you know... So the Pasco has got himself a new gig. Oh, we've got a big
1: job. Big job. Big job over fair there. Fair play Europe. to him. Big job. No, it is fair play to him. It is fair play to him. That'll be good for us. But what is the gig? What is the he doing? Euro group, John, is very interesting because it's got no formal legislative or legal backing in the European Union. So it's a, it's right. an informal group. It's a bit like the Boys Club? It's a bit like the Bilderberg for Eurocrats. Oh, right. Okay. So, what it is, it's an informal, not enshrined in any treaty or any law, an informal meeting of the finance ministers of the Eurozone countries. And in that capacity, it's a very interesting one. So, it has no legal basis. What it is, is a talking shop for the finance ministers of the Eurozone. But actually, what it is, is an extraordinarily powerful, filter process. So the way the European Union works is the European Commission proposes yeah. ideas and the council judges on them. And the European Parliament doesn't really have a huge amount of input. What it does is it tries to input into the European Commission at one level, but it also tries to influence the European Council. But the Council of Ministers is basically the ministers of each individual countries who make the decision. The big ones are made by the Council of Ministers. So this idea when the Brexiteers, the Brits, oh, the European Commission is this unelected bureaucracy. Well, of course it is. That's what bureaucracies are. They're unelected. That's why they're (laughs) bureaucracies, right? So in the same way as the Irish Civil Service will propose ideas to the Irish political system, the European Commission proposes ideas. The European Council is the important one because they vote on things, okay? And the European Parliament is the sort of quasi-democratic legitimacy. Now, the Eurogroup is a makey-uppy thing, but it's incredibly powerful. So they're
2: all kind of talking backstage, as it were.
1: Exactly. So it's a feather in his cap, definitely, and fair play to him. It's also probably a victory for Irish diplomacy, not least because... The two big countries, Germany and France, voted for the Spanish candidate against him. Oh, okay. So it's a victory for the smaller countries within the Eurozone. Now, what his job will be, I would say, is trying to massage the various different interests. So the Latin groups want more money from the European Commission, more money from the European Central Bank, the frugal four, the Germans, the Austrians, the Finns, and the Dutch, don't want to give anything. So this could well be the role of Ireland in the future as a slightly halfway house, Yeah, slightly Latin, understand the fact that we've been through a bailout, understand the Latin concerns. Working all the angles. Working the angles. So, But for those who are real European purists, who believe in democracy. Remember that word? Mm, kind it's of. The idea that the Eurogroup is there and has power is kind of terrifying because there is no basis in European legislation for it. It's a construction that really came into power during the last debt crisis and European crisis. Right. And, you know, fair play to Pascal. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. no problem with that and it's... Yeah. it's You know, better than our Irish guys there than somebody else. But the Eurogroup is probably worth exploring a little bit more because it's deeply unelected, despite the fact that they're elected.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's
1: deeply in parallel to the European institutions because what it's basically doing is it's elevating the finance ministers of the various countries over and above the institutions, the ECB, the Commission. These sort of things. So
2: the likes of Philip Lane doesn't turn up at one of these.
1: Oh yeah, but they'd talk to him. They would talk to him. Right, but and he'd turn up, he would have, he would definitely have, like if they if they asked him to come around and chew the cud, he would. Yeah. But all I'm saying is I I remember when the Greeks were being squeezed, and the head of the Eurogroup was a guy called Dieselbaum, a Dutch guy. Right. There was a sense that the Eurogroup was driving European policy despite the fact of having no political legitimacy or legal legitimacy. And had the European Commission and the parliamentarians from the European Parliament had a bigger say, because after all, we do have a European Parliament election, Mm. I think there would have been a more democratic Europe. But the Eurogroup is much more of an insider's gang.
2: So... The lockdown was celebrated, as you well know, last weekend when everyone went out and went balubas in the bars. Well. Anybody could have predicted that. Yeah. And, and, and seeing pictures from Soho in
1: London was exactly the same. But I do think, you know, wearing masks is kind of essential now and we should do it. It's not a big deal. It's not the end of the world It's going to help everyone. I think, again, to reference Luke O'Neill, he said that if 60% of the people wear masks 60% of the time, corona will not come back. And it's interesting because we're going to go later on in the program, show, Show, podcast, show, show, in the show, in the show. (laughs) Who doesn't like a show? We're going to go to Israel to talk about the annexation of the West Bank with the leader oh, yeah. of the Israeli Green Party, but also the fact that the Israelis have now experienced a massive spike yeah. in COVID. The second wave has coming there. So, you know, masks are going to prevent the second wave. So where are the bleeding things?
2: Yeah. Just back to the Temple Bar thing. This was four months of pent-up... Crack-seeking. Crack Crack-denial. Denial. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And can't. they just let it blast. Well, it's fascinating you mentioned the crack. I have this idea, John, that... The economy is broken into various different parts, right? Right. Right? So, And I think, you know, the reason that we have language, language was invented by humans to create these mental maps in our heads to give us shortcuts to describe things, to understand things, to comprehend things. And language has this fascinating ability to describe new things, which old language isn't good enough to describe, so therefore you invent new language. New words and stuff. New words, new concepts, new metaphors, new descriptions, etc. Now, you mentioned the crack. I think there's such a thing called the crack economy,
2: right? Right. It's not a drug.
1: It's not a a drug. It's not a drug. It's even better than a drug. Oh, right. It's a social concept. But the reason I say I'm giving this idea about language is that sometimes over the years that I've always enjoyed making up words. Right? Yeah. Now, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But the idea is to deploy language to make up something new. So, for example, in about 2005, I was driving home from Mayo doing a gig. And I was driving through a town in Common called Balahadrin. Right. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And I saw this massive big estate being built. Huge. And I thought to myself, who's going to live there? Now, at the time, there was great fanfare. And I just thought, this thing's... Yeah, this is this is doomed. And in my mind came the image. Do you remember when we were kids, the Mary Celeste? I do. Yeah, yeah. It was a boat that was found off the Azores, where there was no sign of any struggle. Yeah. There was no sign of any problem, and yet the crew were gone. Yeah. And they were never seen again. Aliens. They were never aliens. (laughs) This is part of your Martian theory. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I've a theory on that. We go on anyway.
1: So. When I drove past this, it was weird. I got that feeling that this is going to be that, that was a ghost ship. Mm. That These are going to be ghost estates. And I wrote that in about yes. 2005. Yeah. And you know sometimes you throw an idea out does it work? And it just caught the imagination because it described something that people could know, could understand, felt in their bones but just didn't put it yeah. just yeah, yeah. didn't put, quite put their finger on similarly, you know, your man breakfast roll man. Yeah. And you knew, okay, he's working in construction. Construction is booming he's having a laugh, he's booming, it captures something. So playing with language helps to, I think, elevate economics. So sometimes you put them out, they don't work. Sometimes they stick. But what I was listening to yesterday was, again, the government's big plan for the economy, for the great stimulus, job stimulus. And last week we were saying governments can't create jobs, and they can't mm. in the micro sense of the word. Yeah. But what they can do is they can stimulate demand. Yeah, They can make sure that there's demand there into which the entrepreneurs will sell their products and off which will come the jobs, right? Yep, yep.
2: Makes and perfect sense. And I thought like,
1: that basically the part of the economy that has been really hit by COVID is the social economy, the face-to-face economy, the mm. human economy, the chit-chat economy, the crack economy. Yes. The economy where yes. people have yeah, good yeah, yeah. crack. Yeah. So you're talking bars and gigs and festivals and theatres and restaurants, the music industry. You know, we know lots of our friends are in the arts, all the arts, the performing yeah. arts in general. Their income hasn't just diminished in COVID. It's gone to zero.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah, it's either on or off. If you're a musician, and
1: you're performing, you've no gigs. Yeah. If you're an actor, you've no gigs. If you're a restaurant owner, you've no customers. If you're a bar owner, you've no customers, right? So the crack economy is a particularly significant part of the Irish economy because we're better cracked than most people. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. think about it, right? You know? So, well, I'd like
2: to think that's true anyway.
1: No, it is. So you think that the, the crack economy could be as big as 20% of GDP here, right? right? If okay. you think hospitality is 11%. Yeah. Right. If you think transport is another chunk as well, right? And what I'm talking about, and the reason I say transport is people are going to transport these things. People fly in. It's not the it's not the aeronautical industry. They're not coming to Ireland to fly on Ryanair. Yeah. So oh, this is a lovely experience. I can't believe I fly to Ryanair. Right? <laughs> they're coming here for the crack. For the crack. Yeah. And the, yeah, that's right. You fly
2: the, in for the crack. And the
1: taxi drivers are bringing them to A to B, and the buses are bringing them A to B, and the hotel. So it's not just hospitality. It's much bigger than that. It's a whole social substrat of the economy here, which is bigger in Ireland than any other economy in Europe. Why? Because that's our brand. Yeah. And also, why do you think Irish unemployment has gone from five to 25 percent, and unemployment in most of the European countries has gone to 12, 13, 14 percent, because of the crack economy, because we're much more exposed to this face-to-face economy.
2: Right. So yeah, okay, that makes an awful lot of sense. It
1: does make sense when you think yeah. about it. So now we're talking about the government's new plan. It's very clear to me that the government should target different sectors. The tech industry doesn't need a bailout. If you yeah. work in Intel or Facebook, or I mean, Intel being actually the pure example of which, or Facebook, nothing has happened. You've actually profited. You've soared during the last couple of months. Yeah, you work in a bar, you work in a club, you work in gigs, you work in festivals, you've lost everything, right? So the agricultural industry has done well. Retail has done well. I mean, I'm talking food retail. Yeah. Lots and lots of sectors have done fine. But the actual industry that really has been hammered is the crack sector. Yeah. And we should target all our interventions to that sector. So how, how do you do that? Look, like, so what I'm reading now, John, is it's all about grants and it's all about this, that and the other. I just think the ECB has made all this money available to us, this free money. Yeah. Do you know the NTMA borrowed at negative interest rates? Billions, I think $10 billion last week at negative interest rates. So they were being paid to take money from people. So the money is not only free, it's less than free. Yeah. So consequently, there is no cost to the state issuing an IOU The IOU going to the market, the market being backstopped by the ECB, we get the money, right? Then what we could do is go to the crack economy, which has been really badly affected.
2: Yeah, how do we deploy that money?
1: Now, I've thought about this for quite a while. It's kind of helicopter money for the small business sector Mm. that is involved in the part of the economy that has collapsed, which makes complete sense. Targeting, right? You target. Now, if the banks don't play ball, and they're not. It's very clear. The banks are not going to be the avenue through which we can get money. Use ESB bills. Use phone bills. Give people credits. Like the idea... It's a little bit like in peso in... That idea, like, so for example, we know that everyone has an ESB bill. That's the one thing we know, that every small business pays electricity. It has a utility bill. So if the old idea was to give money to AIB, a Bank of Ireland, and then they would give it or make it available to as a loan to small business like bars and clubs and festivals, right? Forget that. Just credit one of their accounts that you know and put a parallel banking system in place. That's this is very how interesting, be yeah. So the idea is that what fascinates me in economics is the idea of, why pretend that there are no other avenues to get money to people? There are thousands of avenues. Yeah. ESB bills, phone bills, gas bills. Everybody but ESB is the best one because everyone has it. Yeah. Turn the ESB into a quasi-bank until the end of COVID. That's the way That's you do it. That's
2: fascinating. I and like then that. you
1: circumvent them who are obsessed by their shareholders in the banks that are privatized and in the public banks like AIB, which is not playing ball. So ignore them. The point is then what you do is you prevent four things. One is a credit crunch in the crack economy. Two, are bankruptcies in the crack economy. Yeah. And I'm talking about an economy that could be as big as 20% of GDP and has more than 20% of employees because think about the crack economy. It's based on people. Yeah. Robots are no crack. It's true. You need people. So you've got more people working it. So one is to prevent a credit crunch. Yeah. Two is to prevent bankruptcies. Three is to prevent the rate of unemployment going through the roof. And four, I come back to that idea, is to prevent good companies going bad that are only going bad because of COVID. Yeah. So this is the whole idea. This is why I call it a pandation, not a recession. Because this is a recession that's been brought upon by a pandemic. Yeah. Economics so, will not fix this. The only thing that's fixed this is going to be medicine. Yeah. So it could go on for ages. Yeah, We could be back into round two, round three, round four. And as long as interest rates remain zero, the ability of the state to borrow and preserve what we have, but also encourage others to go into the industry is infinite. And
0: that's the key.
2: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombuscom slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins. Bluehost makes WordPress
0: wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/slash Wondersuite.
2: Okay, Mac, let's broaden it out a little bit. Let's go a bit global. One of the things I have been reading about, and I'm gonna ask you this because I know you spent a lot of time in Israel, but one of the things I've been reading about is Israel's intention to annex the West Bank. What's your take on that? Where's that going to
1: leave us? It's an extraordinary thing. Well, you know, I lived in Israel for a while. I have a lot of Israeli mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have a lot of Israeli mates. And I've always talked to them about what's going on there. In fact, we're going to talk to somebody who is an Israeli who went to Northern Ireland as part of a Palestinian-Israeli peace group was called the Olive Tree Foundation. All right. To try and see whether something could be learned between the Palestinians and the Israelis. She's an old mate. Her name is Stav Shafir. She's the leader of the Green Party right now in Israel. She was the youngest MP ever in the Knesset. She was elected, a female MP, sorry, at 27. So the youngest woman ever elected in the Knesset. Really interesting person. Great fun. We're gonna give her a call now. She's in Tel Aviv. She just called me to say she's sitting in a kindergarten, just outside the kindergarten. Oh, she says, Don't worry, there's kids screaming, there's the birds, there's traffic. So there's gonna be a bit of this. Excellent. But her name is Stav Shafir. Yeah, a bit of Atmos. <laughs> uh Stav Shafir, very brilliant, brilliant person. As I said, the leader of the Green Party in Israel, and she's on the line. Stav, how you doing? It's been a while. I haven't seen you since November and things were very
0: different back then. Yeah, it seems like years ago now. The last time we
1: spoke, we were hunkered down in a bar in Kilkenny. It was lashing rain, <laughs> freezing cold. You were yeah, like did a... that
0: actually happen.
1: Yeah, it did. Do you remember you probably don't remember? <laughs> it's like the nineteen sixties, if you remember it, you weren't there. <laughs> so listen, Stav, exactly. let, let's let's talk. I mean you've been in the Knesset, you've been involved in Israeli politics for ages. You, you were part of the first big demonstration. You're now head of the Green Party. You I mean, you're deep in the Israeli political world. Can you explain to me and our listeners what Netanyahu's annexation of the West Bank is all about? When did it happen? What's he hoping to achieve? What are the dangers?
0: Well, I have to tell you that right now, I think he's not hoping to achieve anything with the annexation. It seems like and, 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 and this changes every day, but now it seems like he's only using it as another way to create crisis that will distract people's minds from his bad treatment of the COVID and, from, and, and mainly from the investigations and the trial that he needs to stand to because of his corruption allegations. So, so the annexation, like many other things, are the kind of crisis that he is developing politically mainly taking care of his own interest and his inter- his only interest is to avoid trial. And he's using the COVID crisis, he's using the annexation, he's using everything very cynically as a political strategy for his own good.
1: But Stav, tell me, look, you were the youngest female Labour politician in the Knesset. You worked in the Knesset when Netanyahu was boss. What's your take on him? What's he like as a person? What's he like as an operator, you know? Give me a sense of him.
0: Well, at the moment, he's. I think he changed over the years, but it's quite obvious that his main interest is not Israel. And we see it in so many... I mean, I think that the, the biggest two challenges that we have now is the economic crisis and the, the annexation plan. And and I say these are challenges because the annexation plan is a terrible, terrible plan, um, which might lead to the end Of of Israel as it is, it 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 might lead to the end of the of Zionist dream. It's not good for any of the sides of the conflict. It's not an end to the conflict. It's there is no strategy behind it. There is no plan. It's an idea that is not good for Israel. And and on that, I have to say there are also a lot of people, even from the right, that would agree with me now. And and that's one side. And the other side is the economic crisis that's being caused now. Israel, the Israeli government, although. It has the financial ability to take care of the Israeli economy right now. Uh, decided to use our tax money for its own political interest. Uh, so instead of giving the money to unemployed people because of the virus, to to businesses that are just breaking down uh, right now, they use the money in order to make to build the biggest government that there is and to to force Different kinds of political interest within the government. That's a really terrible thing because people are now people just are sinking down because because of the of the crisis right now. Oh. Uh, and I have to tell you, most Israelis are completely unaware of the situation with the annexation plan. Really, it's not even talked about. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's very much it's very much outside in the in the international media. But here in Israel, the only discourse right now is our economy. What oh. happened is that we went into general lockdown quite early on uh, into the virus. And it worked for a while, for a few weeks. And then the government just decided not to give money to, to the businesses and to, and to the workers. So instead of giving money, they just opened up everything really, really fast with not enough tests, with not enough um, infrastructure to deal with the virus. And they opened it up and within a few weeks, we're now experiencing an increase of people who got it. And, and everything is in a complete chaos. And you know, sometimes it just feels like the government has a kind of an interest in the chaos. Because when people are confused and have no, they don't know how to plan for their future because the government doesn't give them any resources to, or knowledge or information to know, or, or, or kind of financial support. So they can't plan ahead. They can't, they're, they're afraid of their families, they're afraid of, of their lives. And so, with that kind of chaos, Netanyahu's trial can go unnoticed, or maybe even stopped. People are
1: fascinated here in Ireland. I mean, you know, you've been in Belfast. You've actually gone there as part of a, a part of a delegation to talk about, you know, the conflict in Ireland, the conflict in Israel. People are here are really yeah,
0: with the olive tree project.
1: Yes, exactly. Remember, you explained that to me.
0: Yeah. So, so I was when I was a student, just after I finished my military service here, which is a compulsory uh, service in Israel. So just after I finished, I went to London to study for three years with a very special group of six Israelis and six Palestinians uh, with whom we lived together in the halls of the university and studied together on conflicts. And we learned a lot from, from the conflict uh, in Northern Ireland and, and traveled several times to Korimela uh, up in the north and, and to Belfast. I don't think that it's a very accurate comparison between the two conflicts, and I'm sure that people uh, over there would agree with me. It's, sometimes we try to, to find similarities, yes. uh, but, but it's not exactly similar. What I can tell you, which is similar in, in most conflicts, is that when a certain level of trauma and a fear of the other side becomes so dominant and the lack of trust, you need very, very brave leadership, both civil leadership and political leadership in order to start and to move forward. And what we're lacking here in Israel and Palestine is that kind of leadership. We see a lot of corruption on both sides. We see two leaderships that are not, in, both of them are in a way not willing to end the conflict. And there is, of course, a huge lack of trust amongst the two peoples my generation, we grew up into, I'm 35 now, we grew up into the first intifada when we were teenagers. So buses in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Haifa were exploding all the time. We, we were, until today, every time I go on a bus, my the first thought that I have in my mind is to look underneath the seats to see if there's no uh, suspicious bag that might be a bomb or, or a terrorist. So all of us are, and, and of course, Palestinians are also traumatized from years and years of of living under the control of of the military and and under also their own government. That doesn't make it easy for them with a lack of freedom. So both of the peoples are traumatized and in fear of the other side. And if we want to end it, we need to create a discourse. We need the collaboration of the other Middle Eastern countries who can be part of that, the moderate Arab, Arab countries. Jordan and Egypt, with whom we have long-standing peace agreements, um, all of them should be involved in, of course, the international community by giving economic and environmental incentives for, for a long-standing agreement to be able to happen. Now, the plan that comes, the annexation plan, is nothing like that. There's no connection to what I just said. It's not. It doesn't listen to the two sides. It basically mixes two communities that see themselves as enemies of each other and, and mixes them together with no security plan for how to protect people, with no economic plan for how to fund the whole thing. And by telling the Palestinians, basically, that they, they, they won't get any voting rights within Israel, which is, of course, something that most Israelis oppose to. So the, the reality here is that we have, and that's after, you know, 40 years of mainly right-wing governments, Israel has 60% support of a two-state solution. That's nothing to be taken for granted. It's a really strong support of a two-state solution in a country that suffers from the conflict and and from a right-wing government for such a long time. So although we were told so many times that peace is impossible, 60% still believe in peace and a two-state solution that respects the two sides. But the same 60% also believe that all the others disagree with them.
1: Right, okay.
0: So, so they, it's, it's the exact same number. They think that most of our country is actually on the right. And I think that internationally, also most people think that maybe people here don't want the two-state solution. So that's not true. The majority of Israelis want a two-state solution. The majority of Israelis don't want to control the Palestinians. They want to have the two peoples, two countries living side by side in peace. And that's what our government is expected to do. But sadly... We now have a government that doesn't follow what people
1: actually want. So, Stavik, explain this to me. If still 60% of Israelis believe this, the two-state side, you want to bring this to a close, you want humanity on both sides, respect, integrity, dignity, and a future for both sides, how come Netanyahu is suggesting in the next few weeks to annex large parts of the West Bank? What's happening?
0: Well, Netanyahu for a very long time is not paying attention to what people actually want. is is too busy with political spin making. Two years ago, I sent when annexation was was again in the discourse and many ministers from the right supported annexation. I sent all of them questions in Parliament on what's your plan? Like how? What, let's let's say we do we annex now the West Bank. What is it going to look like? How are you going to defend? people's lives. What what kind of system are we going to, to all have the same, I don't know, education system? Are we all going to have national insurance? How much is it going to cost? What's the cost for the military? What's the, like, I asked loads and loads of how the government, the mutual government is going to run. Would Palestinians get equal voting rights? I asked all these questions. None of the ministers had an answer. This was just, The the only reason they keep talking about annexation, and and I'm telling you, David, I think they they don't believe in annexation themselves, but the only reason they do it is because the settlers' movement, although being a tiny minority in Israel, less than 1% of the Israeli demography, just 1%, but they are so strong politically inside the right-wing government, they just do politics very effectively. Because they're so strong, all the ministers, and including Netanyahu, want to show them that they're giving them support. The biggest problem here is that a very tiny movement in numbers, the Settlers movement, is controlling a lot of our politics, while the majority that wants peace and that's holding liberal progressive values is not operating politically.
1: You know, it's an interesting thing, Stav, because most people believe that in democracies, majorities rule. But in actual fact, what happens is minorities rule. And the most extreme minorities that shout the loudest rule the most. It's a very phenom- it's yes. a strange phenomenon. We see this all over the world, that very, very small. So, for example, even the context of, even you take Brexit in Britain not that long ago, you know, a tiny minority called the DUP, a Northern Irish party that you know about, because mm-hmm. they, did it, they were very vocal and just had the balance of power at that moment, they became the dominant voice in the United Kingdom about Brexit, as opposed to the 60 million other Brits who voted in various different ways. So what you're saying is the settler movement basically has the has the Israeli government by the balls, in a sense.
0: Yes, exactly. And and the thing is, you know, in 2011, I was part of the organizers of, of, of a big social movement in Israel. That's the, eventually was the reason I went into politics. But why we were organizing the protests it was about social justice and housing prices. And I thought I, shouldn't, I should never go there and none of us should go there. We should influence from the outside and all of that. And, you know, a year, we brought about a million Israelis to the streets. That, that was, Israel is only nine million people. A million Israelis supported our protest and participated physically in the protest. But we saw that it didn't influence politics the way we wanted. And then when I looked at how the system was built, I realized that all of my friends and the people who were part of the protest were just not actually using their power, except for the protest itself, they were not using their power in order to influence politics, so we were losing our money, our rights, our freedom. Eventually now, we are in a process of losing our democracy because of this government, and all of that is happening while we have a majority for our values, but we're just not operating effectively enough in politics because we think politics is not for us. And that's exactly what we, as part of the young generation of Israel, and I think that's actually a, a meaningful thing for the Palestinians to do as well, and I wish to see a young generation of, of on the Palestinian side starting to get more and more involved in politics and trying to influence, because that's, that's our only way forward.
1: So explain to me that from the Palestinian side. I mean, I was always amazed when I was in Israel. You go from, for example, Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You know, you're, you're basically going from one world to another world. You know a lot of Palestinians. What are Palestinians feeling about this annexation plan?
0: Well, I I, I definitely can't talk for them.
1: No, I understand, I understand. My
0: Palestinian Palestinian friends don't have any trust in the Palestinian leadership, and they feel like they have like two governments working against them all the time. And sadly, most of my Palestinian friends don't no longer live in in the region. Uh, They have moved to Europe a long time ago, those who are here are also, like all of us, are afraid for their economy, are afraid for their rights, afraid for their, how they're going to work for their families and have greater freedom in the future. That might be something common for, for the two sides now, that majority of the people on the two sides are in great despair and don't feel like any change can happen. And I think that, as activists, we have to recreate that notion of hope that things can look different. So the same thing can happen with the Palestinians and must happen in our lifetime. But it just takes courage from the two societies to start pushing our governments forward.
1: And you just said, you said that at the start, that you thought, you know, that if this thing goes ahead and if Netanyahu is using the annexation to confuse people, well, to to save his own skin as well, to save his own neck uh, from trial. But, you know, things go ahead for the weirdest reasons, right? You were saying that it could mean the end of Israel, the annexation. What, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I think it's, Israel is, is the Jewish majority and a and democracy. But Israel was built as the home of the Jewish people and a country that has full equality for all of its citizens. 20% of them are of Arab origin. And that's the kind of complexity that we have to deal with. It's the paradox at the center. Yeah. And, 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 and I think if we annex the West Bank, it's going to lead to the breakdown of the Palestinian Authority, with whom we have a very strong security collaboration that, that actually prevents uh, a lot of the violence that might happen. We also are risking the peace agreement with Jordan. We are risking a lot of the, the normalization that's happening with the moderate countries in the Middle East. And of course, and that's the greatest risk, we are risking the whole area with the civil war. And nobody wants that. And you know, the only secure and safe solution and the only moral solution for the two sides is a two-state solution. And, and that's also the obvious solution. And eventually, that's, that's go- going to be reality. It's just a matter of whether we're going to wait for 20 or 30 more years and more people will get killed because of this conflict, or we're going to do it now and save lives and, and, and save the insanity that this, this conflict causes.
1: Stav, I think actually that's a really pretty, it's a lovely way to end, it's the right way to end, which is actually because, as you said, this is the only thing that's going to work. It's the only way that demography and politics is actually moving towards. Listen, Stav, thank you so much. I was lovely to hear the birds in the background, the children in the background, the 30 degree, uh, 35 degree heat of Tel Aviv from where we're sitting here. I wish I could
0: invite you to come visit here in Tel Aviv right now.
1: We'd love to, we'd love to come, but we'll wait for the post-COVID. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much
0: for that. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much.
2: Do you know what really struck me about what Stav was saying there? Was, like, and we've always kind of known this, but Netanyahu is bonkers, right? But he's bonkers in the
1: same Trumpian kind of way. Or maybe he's really clever. What do you mean? I know what you mean about Trump. Does a Trump... Feel macho guy, yeah, married four times like Trump. I think Trump's married four times, yeah. One of those sort of really macho guys. So Netanyahu became the person he is because his brother. Do you ever remember a movie called The Raid on Entebbe? I do, that was a great movie, right? It was about Israeli commandos going to Uganda. That's right, yeah. Idi Amin had facilitated the kidnap of an Israeli plane, I believe it was, or an American plane, with lots of Israelis on it. I can't remember what it was. And there were kidnappers on the tarmac, there were Israeli citizens, and the Israelis sent down their special forces. Yeah. And they... Beat the shit out of them. Yeah, and I believe very few civilians were killed. Mm. But the head of the special forces was a guy called Johnny Netanyahu, who's Bibi Netanyahu's brother. Right. And he was a folk hero in his, in Israel. Yeah. Good luck and young guy, paratrooper, all that sort of stuff. He got shot. He was the first guy out of, first paratrooper out of the plane, Israeli one. Right. When they landed on the tarmac, got shot in the head. Oh, right. Okay. Lots of Israelis say to me that Bibi used that as leverage, used his brother's death because his brother was like a folk hero. Okay. Into Israeli society. It's quite interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. But apparently Bibi's dad and mum were part of Israeli sort of intellectual society before that. Yeah. But when I was there, it was pre-Bibi, right? Which is hard to imagine because Bibi's been president, prime minister four times. Yes. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. But what Stav was saying was interesting that now it's all about preventing him going on trial. So the only way he can actually be pre- prevent himself from going to trial is remaining prime minister. Yeah. And the only way he can distract the country is by creating these false ideas. I mean, she was saying she thinks the annexation might not happen because it's so badly conceived.
2: Yeah, but it's exactly those kind of tactics and that kind of strategy that is so Trumpian, you know, Distract and bluster through everything. Throw up all these kind of uh, yeah, these, these these sort of grenades. You throw them up yeah. all over the place. Oh look, sparkly thing over there. Netanyahu seems to be using the same playbook. But I also think that Netanyahu is emboldened by the fact that Trump. Well, Trump is there, Trump's and they're, got they're feeding his back. I mean, off the each worst other. The
1: Jared Kushner was the one who gave the green light with the Trump plan in January. Yeah. To take thirty percent of the already diminished Palestinian land,
2: but the way he went about it was as a property deal. He was going of to course. pay them fifty billion 50 or whatever. Fifty billion, yeah.
1: Stream of income, a bond. There the you thing.
2: go, and everyone would be
1: happy. But you know what? What Stav was saying there is that if it goes ahead, Israel has two choices. One of which is that the Palestinians become the majority voting bloc in Israel the Israelis give the Palestinians voting right. Once you annex a territory and say it's our country and you're a democracy, you have to give everybody a vote. If they do that, Israel is no longer a majority Jewish state. So suddenly Israel doesn't exist anymore. That's one option. The other option is they do not give the Palestinians a vote. So Israeli Arabs, Palestinians who live in Israel, have a vote. The 20%, they have a vote if they choose not to give the West Bank Palestinians a vote, then they run a completely apartheid state. Yeah, because like people, South Africa. Like South Africa. Now, the Israelis have been walking a fine line for a long, long time saying, this isn't an apartheid state. The Arab Israelis who live within Israel's pre-1967 borders have the vote, they have legitimate rights, and just about that's been tenable. Mm. If they annex the West Bank... And if they don't give the Palestinians a vote, then it's clearly an apartheid state. And what the Israelis seem to forget is that it's breaking all UN resolutions. And if it wasn't for the UN, Israel wouldn't exist. Israel is the only country that I can think of that was set up explicitly by the United Nations. Yeah. So my sense is that if they go ahead of this, and they're they're trying to start it next week, That's the crazy thing. If they go ahead with it, I think she's right. I think it's the end of Israel. Well, that
2: would be incredible. And maybe it would be even more of a tinderbox than it is now.
1: Well, I mean, what I can't understand is because of the American-Saudi Arabian hatred of Iran, the Israelis have forged this crazy alliance with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, In the region. And because Saudi Arabia bankrolls all the other countries, all the other countries can't be anti-Israeli. The Israelis have a peace treaty with Jordan and Egypt. They have a tacit alliance with Saudi Arabia. If you look to the north, Syria as a threat to Israel is over. Lebanon was never a threat to Israel. Mm. So the Israelis have everything they want in the region. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, 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 they yeah. Everything they want, they have no need to do this. Yeah, And that's what I can't understand. Like, If you're an Israeli tactician, right, and you're looking out from Tel Aviv and you realize, we just have to play the game here and we won't be touched. Whereas if they annex the Palestinians, suddenly the game is totally changed. And their position, which has been, I think, immoral, but from their perspective, they've got away with things. Suddenly, they get the light shined on them again. So it seems to me to make no real sense. What would
2: be the difference between Israel annexing the West Bank and Russia annexing Crimea?
1: What is the difference? Everyone should scare Russia. You know, I mean, the Russians will say that there's a fundamental difference. So the Russians say that Crimea, as they call it, Nasha Krim. Right. Nashakrim means our Crimea. It's written all over Russia. If you go to Russia, I was there last year. Nash Krim, which yeah. is our Crimea. Crimea was given to think about this. Given to Ukraine by Khrushchev. Right. In the fifties, Crimea was always Russia. It was never Ukraine. It was always Russia. Yeah. It's the soul of Russia. It's it's the Tartar Republic and the Tartars and the Russians. And they're all Russian fought. speaking. Of course, all Russians, yeah. the Ukrainians yeah. in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah. So the Russians feel that they have this idea of our Russian home and Crimea is part of it. And in the Soviet Union, they gave Crimea to the Ukrainian SSR, but Ukrainian SSR was basically part of the Soviet game plan. Right. Very much so. The West Bank is not Israel. Only people who believe it's, if you meet very extreme is They call it Sumeria and Judea. Mm. They don't call it the West Bank. The West Bank is the West Bank of the Jordan River. Yeah. The West Bank of the Jordan River used to be called Trans Jordan. And it was carved up by a guy called Sykes and a guy called Pico, an <laughs> English civil servant and a French civil servant after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Damn civil servants again. <laughs> Damn, drawing lines. So the West Bank has never been Israel. Whereas yeah. you can argue Crimea was once Russia. Right. You know, if you want to look that way, it seems to me a totally crazy, crazy thing to do. And, that's, and we're talking from the Israeli perspective. Yeah. Think about it from the Palestinian perspective. Years ago, and it's, I think it's a really good way of looking at this, I interviewed Edward Said, the amazing Palestinian intellectual at Columbia University, beautiful man, wrote a great book called Orientalism Mm. about how we fetishize, Western people fetishize the East, the Orient. Right, yeah. Amazing book, really well worth reading. But he said something to me, it was his final comment to me and I interviewed him and he was dying, he had stomach cancer and he was very, very sick and he's a Christian Palestinian as many of the Palestinian intellectual class were. And he said, David, if you really want to understand us and the Israelis, you've got to understand one thing. He said, we are the Palestinians. We are the victim of victims. He said, when you were occupied by the British, you were the victims of a race that thought they were superior. Mm -hmm. He said, we are the victims of a race who were victims. And he said, if you're the victims of the victim." the original victim can do almost anything and can be legitimised by virtue of their legacy and their memory. I thought, that's pretty profound. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. So the 12th, Mark? When I'm looking at the 12th, I'm looking at Battle of the Boyne. What actually happened? Why did it start? Why... Were the Williamite forces drawn up against King James's forces in Drogheda. What the hell were they doing there? Yeah. And what you see, it was all part of a greater, greater revolution that people forget that Holland invaded England and took over. There was a Dutch invasion of England. English state, oh, we've never been overthrown, we've never been taken over. Yes, you were. The Dutch came in and right. took you over. Okay. Now why did that happen? It happened because of money. The Dutch invented the bond market in Amsterdam in the middle of the 17th century. If you want to hear more of that story, join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams.
2: and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us. Call
1: 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
0: In
2: manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by BlueBotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.